I've always been able to absorb issues because I bought the dirt right. Like the goal is to buy the dirt so right that no matter what comes up, you're still in the green. That's what it's all about. And that's what I do. Trust me, I make plenty of mistakes every single day, both in talking to potential investors, to talking to consultants, to looking for land, to everything. I make mistakes every single day. We just do a really good job of not making the same mistake twice. And we also do a really good job of making sure that even if we do make the mistake, we're going to be okay. Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners become educated and get access to private investments to help them build their legacy. I'm your host, Pascal Wagner, and today I'll be interviewing Ray Mazzi from Fort Lauderdale. Welcome, Ray. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thanks for that. Yeah, man. So uh, right now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a quick bio on Ray, uh, just to get everyone uh, acquainted with, with what he does and how he works. So so Ray is the founder and managing partner at Southern Waters Capital, a ground-up rental housing developer focused on build-to-rent, multifamily, and manufactured housing, uh, headquartered in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Their strategy is to buy land at below market value, entitle that land, forcing appreciation, and then raising capital to complete construction with the goal of holding long-term or selling upon completion or stabilization. Since founding in 2020, Southern Water Capital has raised more than 30 million over six different funds, which has allowed them to grow their uh, to grow over 450 million in assets under management, with a historical two to three x equity multiple across their funds. Today, if you want to participate in any of their offerings, it requires a minimum check of fifty thousand dollars as a new investor, and uh, I'm excited to dive in here with Ray. So. Right. Um, to start out, the first thing that we always want to talk about in this type of episode is uh, tell us about your asset class from someone who's never heard about build to rent or manufacture housing or what even ground up rental housing is. Yeah. Like, what is it and why should we be excited about it? Have it in our portfolio. Yeah. Well, let's let's start from the, the bottom up, right? So first and foremost, we're value investors that focus on land. Um, really, what, what's most exciting about land, everybody knows God's not making any more of it. People may try and make it out of ones and zeros in the metaverse, but you're not making any more dirt here on God's green earth. So the most important thing is you have, um, you have a, basically a finite supply of land. Everybody knows that. Usually, if you're in an area where there's some type of um, net migration, strong diversity and economic growth, and other types of fundamental supply and demand drivers. It, it's pretty hard to lose on land if you buy it right and buy it in a good location. Really, there's like three things that'll keep you safe in any real estate transaction. It's good location, good basis, meaning your purchase price, what you have in the asset in regard to dollars actually spent. And then lastly, if you have a balance sheet. So if you don't put any debt on it, you have a balance sheet and you can wait. More likely than not, your land will be more valuable than when you purchase it, so long as you follow the the two preceding rules I mentioned. So, from a from the start, we're land developers, which not most people are. There's not a lot of people who do what I do, and I never thought we actually did something really unique until I keep going to all these conferences and going on podcasts, and you know, somebody's like, "All right, I, I know people who have maybe done portions of what we do, but not all of what we do." Um, so we're really focused on the value, meaning we're buying land that's unentitled, as you mentioned, 
forcing appreciation through entitlement, which is essentially just consider something. If it were cow pasture and I get it prepared, shovel ready for, you know, three, 400 units of apartments, it's no longer being valued on a per acre basis. It's being valued on a per unit basis, which will go up and down with the market, but over the long term generally goes up. So, um, from the basic level, that's what we are. We are. We're land investors. We're focused on value, and we make sure that we have the ability to force appreciation through things that not anybody else is going to get in the way of, i.e., property rights. You know, I'm a, I'm an attorney by education, so definitely wasn't the best attorney. That's why I'm no longer one. But um, good enough to be dangerous, and definitely good enough to hire really, really great land use attorneys to um, help us fulfill all of our projects. Um, so that's the first uh, real piece of being a land investor and being a being a land developer. The second piece, as you mentioned, would be the other asset classes that usually are built upon the land, right? The build to rent, the manufactured housing, um, and the traditional multifamily. So we call ourselves rental housing developers because at the end of the day, I don't want anybody putting me in a box. I don't want somebody not sending me a garden style um, land development play for a multifamily asset because they think that I only do build to rent or somebody not sending me manufactured housing because they think I only do uh, multifamily or, or any of those um, situations. And at the end of the day, we think that the actual end user of rental housing is is pretty consistent in regard to what they're looking for. The biggest differences come down to their socioeconomic status. It's usually the income that makes the tenants different, not really the, uh, not really the location of the asset, you know, leaving a little bit of space for different types of amenities for different types of people, right? Um, so, when it comes to ground up development, we're, we're the guys who are putting together the entire capital stack. We're the sponsor. We bring in the debt, the equity. Hopefully, you don't need preferred equity or any mezzanine debt. But um, basically, we're bringing all these, we're bringing together the capital stack and we're either developing, like I mentioned, manufactured housing, which is essentially building a, a really fancy parking lot with a with maybe a playground and a pool. Um, and then you, you have the home shipped in, or we're doing multifamily construction or build to rent horizontal um, multifamily, which I'll, I'll explain a little bit more. I'm sure everybody knows what multifamily is when it comes to garden style communities. You see them all over the place. A newer trend is build to rent or build for rent. Um, and there's a couple different types of it. You know, you can have attached, meaning like townhomes. You can have detached, meaning single family. Um, and then you can also have what people are calling cottages or if you're in, in South Florida, casitas. Um, and essentially, that's horizontal multifamily. The difference between horizontal multifamily and a, uh, a quote-unquote build-to-rent community is that the build-to-rent community is individually platted. So each home on the site, even though maybe owned by one owner, is actually individually platted and could be sold off. And there's advantages on the debt side to why you'd want them individually platted. You're able to um, usually secure better debt terms and things of that nature. But then again, if you have... Go ahead. I'm going to take a step back and just maybe rehash. So, so in essence, what you do is you do two things. You buy, you buy land and then you figure out how to rezone it. And that's like one whole business in and of itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you've, I guess you could call it like vertical integration if, if you want to, yeah, but you, right. you then um, take on the construction and actually build build whatever type of quote unquote asset, whether it's an apartment building or a, or a, you know, 
single family homes or whatever you could put on that piece of land, you do that as well. Exactly. And you can think about it from kind of the, the, the tech point, the tech uh, field. You know, the top of our funnel is, is buying unentitled land at great prices. That then becomes our inventory for the next stage of the funnel, which is to then build the next asset. And while you're going through that process, we've also, I don't want to get too off track, but we also do, we haven't discussed this in our previous conversations, but we also do develop lots um, delivery for large home builders. So for instance, if I buy, it's, it's much easier to get a great deal on a master plan piece of land. So something that maybe has room for industrial, room for single family, room for multifamily, and it's 80, 90, 100 acres. So I'll have home builders or honestly brokers, anybody call me after I put something under contract and essentially come to me and say, hey, we'd like to take a piece of that land for some single family homes. And then what they prefer to do because they want just-in-time delivery of shovel-ready dirt, that's their inventory, they want me to then do the site work. So I put in the spine road, I put in the roundabouts or the cul-de-sacs, if you will, maybe build an amenity. Um, but most definitely, I build out all the lots for them to just do what we call vertical construction. So the home builder gets to come in, uh, provide a nice deposit. We use our site contracting partners to go in, do the work, and then they start to take down the lots, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 at a time um, on a monthly basis as they sell through to their customers. So um, it's it's all the same. At the end of the day, the way I think about it is it it's all ground up development. I'm just lucky enough to have the skills to start all the way at the top of the value chain where you you have to worry the least about, about the consumer, which is great. But at the same time, you still need to understand um, what drives the investors of the different stages in the value chain. So it's not like I'm some kind of genius and I, I'm one of you who does land development. It's just, I'm a guy whose natural skills and relationships happened to bring me to that. It wasn't that I, you know, I woke up and was like, I definitely want to be a land developer. I know exactly what I want. I knew I really loved real estate. I knew what I was good at, which is really being a people person and understanding value and really understanding what my next investor and what their consumer really wants. And I'm able to position the asset to become that. And I do it in a methodical and very cost-effective way. Um, we even approach land development much different than other groups. Like most people I've mentioned on the show, Shovel Ready. First off, we should back up and talk about entitlements because you say I zone things. You're totally right, but that's only one piece of it. So the zoning is the easiest thing. It's the first thing we do. We make sure that we can get something zoned. It's usually like 50 grand for somebody like me. So I'll do a lot of the legal work myself. Once you get through the zoning, now you're in the world of what I call entitlements, which is, you know, what, what are the particulars about your zoning? What are your setbacks? What type of permits are you going to need? What type of exceptions or variances? All these different little bells and whistles that go, that overlay the zoning. The zoning and the land use are like the, the first layer of the cake that everything else goes on top of. And then that, one, that the city then decides, like the yeah, city has the yeah, okay. county. It really depends, or the city and the county. And they all have their own little rules about how a, how a certain geography needs to, you know, the maximum height buildings can be. So it all goes house. back to you're 100 right, and not to cut you off, but it all goes back to the comprehensive plan. So like every 20, 15, 30 years, whatever that jurisdiction decides, they vote and put together this the growth department or their 
planning department, whatever they call it. Everybody's got a different name for everything too. So that's always fun. But um, once, once they have these open hearings and these meetings, they're public, they figure out how they want the city or county to grow. Where will the city jurisdiction expand? expand? Where will the county jurisdiction stay? Because that's not moving. Um, are there going to be special central bis- business districts? Are there going to be CRA areas? Are there going to be these different, what we call uh, zoning or, or land use overlays on top of the generic municipal or county code that outlines those things that you're mentioning, building height and all that? which is different depending upon product, which could change depending upon the different amendments to the, to the future land use. So it gets really, really complicated, but at the end of the day, I make it super, super simple. It's like, I take, I go on Google, I take a future land use map and I overlay them. And then I look for things that are not in their current, not in the future land use. So for instance, you may see some ag land that's actually has a future land use of multifamily residential but nobody go go into detail like ag land yeah, and so future use cow so cow pasture corn fields you'll always if you go down into south florida and you you zoom out if you around boynton beach area or boca or something you'll see like these random patches of farmland like maybe it like i know in parkland i was driving my girlfriend's parents house and there was like this just random farm East of 441 and like not that far from 95. I'm like, I can guarantee you the future land use of that is not agricultural. Agricultural is a land use. So you have like agricultural, industrial, office, residential, all these different land uses. And then within those land uses, you have particular zonings. So you can have medium, low, high density residential. You can have heavy manufacturing, light manufacturing, industrial. You can have all these different levels to the zoning and the land use, which then affects your density, your setbacks, your height, what I call the sandbox that you're allowed to allowed to play in. So land use and zoning are step number one. Um, and what I'm looking for is somebody who hasn't taken the time to, to bring something to its future land use. And maybe that's because they're still operating it as a farm. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, it's not like that person's lazy or whatever. They're, they're doing what they wanna do and they, they know that their land is now worth X amount more because you're going to be able to bring it into this future land use. So um, I look for those types of disconnects or honestly happy to buy zoned land, already zoned land that's at a great price, but just good luck finding it. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. So, you know, it, it's really interesting how to me it's super simple, but really, really difficult. It's not that it's like complex by any means. There's so many people out there who, much more cerebral than me, but at the same time, don't have the grit or perseverance or the people skills to get in there, negotiate with the seller, negotiate with the city, negotiate with the county, understand the code, work with attorneys, work with engineers, work with the architect, work with the DC, be able to speak all those different languages, and then also bring that to the capital markets. So I really find myself constantly, you know, it's it's like arbitraging Main Street with Wall Street, and I'm the guy in the middle making sure that they each understand each other, and um, at the same time that we're all aligned, or else the transaction's not going to happen. If you can't convince the seller to give you the right amount of time to get the asset prepared for your next investor, your next investor isn't going to invest. You're not going to be able to pay the seller, and the story goes on and on and on. And that's just how um, land development is. So it's I always say it's kind of like a game of hot potato. But um, 
it's really fun. So, so as an investor, uh, as someone who's trying to figure out um, what I'm, uh, what to invest in, I, I always say that there's three different things that, as an investor, you need to be cognizant that you're looking for. You're either looking for cash flow, uh, tax benefits, or equity growth, um, or a mixture of all three. Uh, and so, what, what outcome? is the investor looking for if um, when they're investing with you in one of your funds? Yeah, so I'd say I provide all three, but just some funds have more of one than the other. So they can be like, like taste the porridge and pick which one they like the most. But if you're getting involved in one of our land development deals, which is buying the raw land with us, providing funds with, alongside us to help us bring it to shovel ready, that asset's not producing income. That's obvious. However, it's such an asymmetric bet. I'm putting things under contract for less than 1% of the value. I'm putting down, I'm spending probably anywhere from 50 to 200 grand to really push appreciation really quickly. Um, now we'll raise much more than 50 to 200 so we can keep pushing the, keep pushing the project forward. You don't want to have to always pause and keep going. So my point is, is I mentioned earlier, after I rezone or bring it to its future land use, uh, the value of the assets immediately much greater than whatever the, the capital that's been um, put into it. So for instance, I got, an, I got an asset at like six grand, eight grand a unit, meaning that I, it was, it's, I'll, use, I'll just use this as an example. It was 36 acres, it was cow pasture on the corner in Ocala, and I knew that I can get it rezoned for 360 units, right? But 10 units an acre. But I know that it's being priced right now based off of its agricultural use and potentially a little bit of appreciation and some, you know, upside for future land use, right? So I think the actual purchase price was 2.5. It was 2.5 million. So you know, you divide 2.5 million by 360. Put you less than uh, put you less than than ten grand a unit. I'll do it real quick. So put you at like six nine forty four. Call it seven grand a unit, right? So I'm in the deal at seven grand a unit. I've only put down twenty grand, twenty five grand to lock up the asset. I spent fifty, whatever. We'll round up. I'll say I spent eighty, right? So I spent a hundred grand so far. Eighty of it I can't get back. I can actually get my deposit back, but eighty of it I can't get back. So say I've got a hundred in, that lands at two point five million. I I got offered within the first month an eight hundred thousand dollar assignment fee. Just walk away, seven x my money or eight x my money and leave. Obviously, I didn't take that because that was within one month. I, I call that guy back three months later. I don't need to do that on day one. Um, second to that, I got I had it actually in the height of the market. I had it under contract for assignment at four point seven million dollars more than my purchase. So you're talking about me expending 250 million, I mean 250,000 and being having something under contract already at 4.7 million. So then what did I do? I I took that deal. I let that group spend money to entitle the land, so I stopped spending money. I'm now spending other people's money to entitle the land and get it to where I would have brought it to anyway. Lo and behold, you know, man plans, God laughs. Lo and behold, a very large institution got scared at the end of last year, which is probably smart, 
um, and hold their money. So they said, hey, we're not, we're not giving you any more money. Well, I still took all the deposits. So I took more in deposits than I put into the dirt. And now I have the dirt back. And I've, I had an offer at 4.7 million over asking over what I had it at. And I had an $800,000 um, offer just to assign it and walk away. Um, so, you know, I'm feeling really comfortable, right? But at the same time, I still have a closing date. So I have to decide what I'm gonna, am I gonna ditch the asset? Am I gonna partner with somebody? What am I gonna do? And really my job is to create value, provide optionality and secure the return at the least amount of risk, right? Secure the greatest return at the least amount of risk to get there. So I was lucky enough to partner with a very large, very large developer with billions in their portfolio. Um, to come in on the deal with me. And essentially, we negotiated a land lift, what we call it, where basically when I contribute my my land to the partnership, I get a, you can call it a fee or whatever, it's a capital account allocation. That capital account allocation ended up being two to three X more than the money I'd already spent. So, and then that capital account allocation is senior to all the waterfall returns in the GP structure. So I've already secured my investors their two, three, two and a half, three X return. And now I go to them and I say, hey, you wanna take the ride with me? If you don't wanna take the ride with me, we'll cash you out, we'll figure out a way to recap and whatever, it's not a big deal. And you but, can take your money, consider that, hey, I two, three X my money, mm -hmm. and you know that's good, or you then they allow them to- Because you already bet on a non-cash flowing asset, give me another year or two, We've seen the offers we've gotten, even if it's half as valuable as it's been purported to be over the next two years, you'll, you'll do great. So you're kind of, that's the land development side and that's the equity appreciation. And, um, you know, once it's operating and CO'd and all that, you're, you're going to get depreciation and other things like that once the asset's built. But, but really, it's a, um, it's, a, it's a get rich slow game on that. As you can tell, you can you can make a quick flip, but when you realize when you are the man or guy or man or girl out there grabbing that asset and how hard it is to negotiate it and get it off, you really don't want to let go. Like you really do not want to let go, and it's really hard to look at your investors and tell them like, "Hey, I know we can make seven, eight x what what I you know what I mean what our investment is in three months," but I'm telling you that's that's nothing but a that's that's a KPI for you. That that should be something that you know now. This thing's worth it. We're in the money. So it's like stay at the table. Don't leave the table because when you look around and all these all these larger groups are able to buy assets upon CEO um, certificate of occupancy or stabilization when the asset is operating and bank says bank says you can refi your debt and all that. You realize how much that premium they pay to developers like me. It's a BB on the highway to them because they know how hard it is to build something over two, three, four years. So they have no problem paying that premium. I wish I was one of those big whales. I'm not that yet. We will be one day. But right now, it's funny. And it's, it's sad when you have to sell an asset because you know what you just built. You built the thing that all the big shops want. So... so, so if I'm coming in, so I'm just putting my investor hat on and I'm trying to have the audience who's listening in say, okay, is land, is land entitlement an, a niche that I want to invest in? Um, and so what I'm hearing here is, is that um, 
if at least when you get into land entitlement, not talking about the buildup that you do afterwards, um, that that is primarily an equity growth play. And so that is a, I'm putting my money down and you're Warren Buffett bet. You're, you are buying it because you know you bought it at a good price and you are betting on the manager and the land value holding because you bought it at a good price and you're going to not, you're not, you're not going to worry about the market. You don't, it's amazing to watch the equity market just up and down, up and down. My appraisals do not do that. That is not how it happens. So it's just, it's interesting. I, I, it's amazing how you can buy a piece of land changes zoning and your as is appraisal is literally millions of dollars in difference and you spend 50 to 200,000 dollars. So so if I wanted to participate uh what is my expected hold period? So uh, you know, are you saying hey, you know, you should be comfortable being in this deal for up to 7 to 10 years, but our likelihood of like flipping this is in a year? Um, for just the land entitlement portion, or or what are those common timelines for you? Yeah, so great question. So the for what we'll call land development, land entitlement, that we usually tell our investors, look, it's a twelve to eighteen month investment where you're getting a great guaranteed preferred return. Shouldn't call anything guaranteed, but preferred return that's senior to our position. You're going to get that, and you get an equity piece. So we're, we're basically saying, look, over the next 12 to 18 months, you're going to make 15, 16, 17% pref, and you get an equity piece. And then by that time, we will have either courted a partner to go vertical with, or we'll sell the deal. So at that time, when a, a strike period, we're going to say, hey, you want to if we're selling, everybody's getting out, right? There's no, hey, just happening. If we're partnering, it's like, hey, do you, do you want to crystallize your return and exit? Or do you want to stay in the deal with us? Your pref gets pushed to a capital account. It'll get paid when cap, when we have a liquidity event. And here's where the land's valued. Here's where we're contributing it to the partnership. When we contribute to the partnership, it's never at the price we paid for it. It's always at something that's going to be enough to obviously pay my first investor. I mean, that's the first thing. I'm like, if I can't pay my first investors, I certainly can't take my second investors. So that's how we look at it. It's 12 to 18 months. Could be three years. Could be seven years. We could end up building a 400 unit. Like I've got that, that deal that I'm talking about. We, we will probably hold that thing until the day I die. 360 units in the, in a great market in Florida with extreme fundamental supply and demand imbalance and one of the strongest economies and the highest net migration, um, in the state. Like, yeah, I want to hold that asset and the very, and the very wealthy partners that I work with to go vertical because they have to sign on the balance sheet. They have to have a balance sheet worth the value of the loan. Our loans are $60, $70 million. These guys and girls are like, yeah, we're going to hold the asset. If you want out, Ray, we'll pay you to leave. So that's how once you stay in, you stay in. But you know you're going to get a coupon in a couple of years. And you know you're going to get a nice liquidity event. That'll be a cap gain. Um, so long term. So liquidity event, meaning you're going to get a refinance pulling your money out. And a coupon, you mean you're getting passive yeah. income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the coupon, basically, I always call it like you're creating your own bonds when you're a developer and you can actually hold something. Um, you don't have to worry about some bank just being you to death. So the coupon, yes, is the is the quarterly or biannual, whatever the, the partnership, the JV decides to, to distribute cash at. That's what you'll get as an investor over time. And then when you have the refi, obviously all that cash is tax-free and it's definitely substantial. Um, 
but yeah, that's those are the two things you can bet on in the long term. And then we have, we do have cash flowing investments as well. So so when you're well, so I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, uh, land entitlement sounds interesting. Um, sounds like you can make good equity growth returns um, because your whole focus is just buying things that are underpriced uh, instead of relying on a, a value add component. And but what are the risks associated with it? Like, let's walk through all of the stuff that can go sideways. And that, like, if I'm an investor, and you know, and if, and if we're sitting across the table, and I'm saying, like, hey, I'm interested, how? What are all the ways this can go sideways? What would you tell me? Yeah. So everybody always knows the classic Native American burial ground. That can always happen. Um, but I will say that those types of things, even if they are found, you can you can get around them in the legal way. What does that mean? So, you know, you find an archaeological site and you're, doing, you're digging on construction. So, let me back up. Everything I'm about to say gets mitigated through the site due diligence process, which includes environmental studies, archaeological studies, geotechnical studies, surveys. Um, you're looking at other types of endangered species studies. You're going through anything in that titles, title reports, anything and everything that can affect or encumber your property rights and ownership rights. So first and foremost, title. You can buy something with bad title. Obviously you do a title report, uh, you get some title insurance. That problem's pretty much solved. Uh, next one, I would say you could run into some type of environmental issue. You, that'll be avoided with a phase one and with getting all your other endangered species reports and getting all your other surveys that allow environmental professionals to go out and make sure that there's nothing out there that needs to be protected or shouldn't be disturbed or whatever you want to call it. Um, past that, like I said, the geotech could run into sinkholes. You could run into soil that's not that's not good for building upon. You might have to bring in a bunch of import fill, which costs a lot of money. Um, you can also you can also make a you know a rookie a rookie mistake and get something that doesn't have utilities to the site because the utility capacity or concur concurrency on that road is at full capacity and you'd either have to improve the pump station, build a new pump station, improve the piping to the area, put in a new manhole, some type of water main. You could really get screwed there. Water man the water management district. If you find out that you're in some type of watershed that's not allowed to be impacted, you may have to build your community or not be able to build your community, but you may have to build it in a way that ensures you don't affect the rest of the floodplain and in a you know non-beneficial way, you can get in trouble. Basically, long story short, you have to make sure that your water gets pushed off your site into the appropriate areas so that it is then pushed out of the communities around you in the in the way that the um, city or county designed their system. You can't basically burden the city, county, or your neighbors because you want to exercise your property. Uh, things like that. And then, you know, surveying. We've had, trust me, we've had bad surveyors literally survey the wrong land. And I thought, I did something really wrong, and next thing you find out, I'm like, ah, you literally shot the wrong, shot the wrong land. So you could you could find out that your survey, um, once you get your survey done, somebody might have built a fence on your property. Somebody might have accidentally gone over their property line, and then you have to go back to the title. And when you lay the title against the survey, you're like, yeah, no, Mister, Mrs. Neighbor, you're you're in my yard, and you either we we have to figure that out now. Um, so basically, anything and everything can go wrong. 
and you pay somebody like me to go through the site DD to make sure that everything goes right. And that's done with really, really great um, professionals and consultants. Because as you can tell, you you can't be an archaeologist, an environmental specialist, a geotechnical specialist, a surveyor, a water management district professional, a utilities professional. You can't be all these things. So there's no point in trying to be all of them. The real thing is to to understand what you need to be looking for and being really good. Honestly, it's a Socratic method. You're just, you have to not be afraid to sound dumb and ask any and every question. And um, that's really what will make sure you get to the other side unscathed. But pretty much everything can go wrong. I wish I so, had a better so, answer. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me just try and frame it this way where... So you, you know, you're on the equivalent of your Google search or, you know, multiple listing service where you find pieces of land out in the ether of the Florida and you come across one. And um, then what you do is you like put in a contract to a broker or whoever the owner is. And you say, hey, like, I'd like to go under contract potentially buy this home because they probably have it listed for sale. Right. Usually not, but sometimes. Okay. Okay, so you're hitting them up and you're like, hey, I, I think I'd like to buy your land. Okay, and then, uh, and then you go under contract and there's, you give them some sort of earnest money to show that you're a real. Uh, and then you have a due diligence period that is like when you buy a home, it's like two weeks or you know, depends. Yeah, so, yeah, how, how long is that? Yeah, so that's the, the whole thing. First, it's, yeah, I send out an LOI. Here's my price. We can work on that. Great. Second, I'm, I'm making sure they give me all the DD that they've done in the past, meaning the due diligence they've done in the past, which is usually survey, title, all that kind of stuff. Um, but as far as terms go, I'm under contract for 12 to 15 months. So I've got a long time to handle all this kind of stuff. And usually, I know if I want to buy the dirt within 60 days. That's usually when I can get all the consultants that matter to me, the critical consultants, the critical surveys and inspections. After that, it's kind of a capital markets design political game. So, so you put, let's call it, you know, 20 grand down um, for as an earnest money. And then you're personally spending 50, 80, hundred thousand dollars, depends on the deal of land, everything like that. But you're, you're putting your hard earned money out and that's why you're raising capital um, to, do that due diligence and yeah, then we'll hold the first six months of risk like we trust me i'm not bringing anybody into something that i'm going to leave the contract on because now i'm going to look look like an idiot honestly so i make sure that i'm i'm ready to buy it i just am not ready to buy it because we need to make sure that my next investor is also ready to buy it so you know if i had all the money in the world and i and i could you know hold things for as long as i needed to i'd buy it really what this is it's free leverage i mean you get a year year and a half of of a loan at 20 grand and it's refundable if you don't get what you want. So really you're only at risk at what you're willing to be at risk with, which is what you're willing to spend your money on to ensure you can take the deal to the next Yeah. Level. So so at that point you're spending you're spending the money to do the due diligence and and that is the risk um, to the investor, or you're saying you put that out of your own pocket and then once you've established in the first 60 days that it's good enough, then you take the capital that you've raised. Exactly. So usually we're going to spend the, we being Southern Waters Capital, we're going to spend the first 50, 100 grand just to feel it out. Can I get my zoning? Talk to my attorneys. I have my engineer, my civil engineers make sure that the site really maps out appropriately depending upon wetlands, the out, the uh, 
the topography of the site, the likely soils based off of other things they've done in the area, the open space, setbacks, all that kind of stuff. Can I fit what I really want to build? I figure, can I fit what I want to build and is my foundation solid, meaning the land we're actually going to purchase? Once I'm done with that, that's when I go out to my investors. I, you know, the real risk my investors have is me not finding a good capital markets situation. Like right, right now, this is part of the top. So, so capital markets to like a five-year-old. Yeah. So I need to make sure the bank will still give me the debt. Wait, to, for the next, the next for- phase of the project. Otherwise, the land will sit on the market. Um, again, not the worst thing in the world if the land sits on the market, right? It's not, we're not going to lose automatically because of that. Um, but that's really the biggest risk is the, the time value of money. So, um, and opportunity costs where they can be putting their money in other places. So, at the end of the day, what, what the investor really needs to be worried about is do they truly believe that the community I'm designing and showing the capital markets? Do they truly believe it's going to be accepted by the capital markets? That's the risk they need to worry about. I've already got my zoning and my land use done by the time they come in. I've made sure there's, you know, I've done sporadic geotechnical reports. I've done my surveys. I've done my um, title reports. I've made sure the environmental is clean. I've done all that kind of stuff. Um, and now I'm coming in and saying like, hey, you guys ready to take the, the ride with me to the next stage? It's going to take a little bit more capital. I'm going to have to let my gonna have to let my engineers run a little bit more which costs money to go through the site plan process so that's when i bring them in and um is that common like is this is this your approach or like when you talk to your colleagues that people like i have to believe that there are a couple other firms that you know of that do something similar in the land entitlement space like is that common for them to pay for it themselves like if you're an investor and you're looking at Southern Waters Capital, and you hear this other firm does something um, similar. Like, is that to be expected? That kind of uh, structure, or is that unique to you guys? Everybody that I know in the business of what we do does it in a similar way. It's not all the same, but usually it's the land developer who's taken the first amount of risk. One, I want to be in control, hundred percent. I want it's it's my dirt. I've I've got my my grips on it and I'll do whatever I want. And if I don't like what the investor's offering, I'm not at their mercy. So um, this is the way that I've always seen it done. I'm sure there are other shops out there that do it a different way and they spend your dollars at first risk. Um, but that's just not how we, we prefer to go. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, so we've, uh, I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, if I'm looking for equity growth, uh, and I think land entitlement is is interesting to me, um, and I'm okay with you know holding my capital between one and you know x ten years. Um, and so, if I'm comfortable with all of those things, what is the slam dunk knock out of the park you know success story like? Like, you know, part of it is, yeah, okay, maybe I, I invest in this asset class if there are two two to three X multiple returns, but um, it, should I be focused on on that? Or what are the, what are those home run deals? What you be really excited about is that you're, one, you're getting into deals at a stage that literally very, very, very few people have the opportunity to get into, period. We're just all the way up the value chain. There's not that many of these. Usually the people at my stage, in five years, this opportunity won't exist anymore. 
I won't, I won't be offering this to other people. I'm going to keep all the winnings for myself. Just be completely frank and open and honest and five years won't be doing it this way. Um, but if you are able to work with us right now, what you should be excited about is when you're on the GP, the general partnership side as a passive investor, the way um, these individuals would be is you're getting all the benefits of being the GP, which means tons of leverage, um, not only through debt, but just through the fact that we're able to leverage relationships and contracts. But you're on the GP side and not having to do any of the GP work, which is such a great thing. You can basically expect to get almost the same equity multiple that our money our money's going to get. So you're going to be 3x or greater if you stay in for a long time. And you'll get a, liqui a decent liquidity event compared to your original investment on refi. And then after the refi, your cash on cash is going to be through the roof. I mean, you're basically, when you read about Warren Buffett and all these other great value investors, they talk about how their dividends slowly reduce their basis or how they invested 10 years ago. And compared to their original investment, it's a 15, 20% annual return to them. That's what you're doing for yourself. You're working and, and investing on the value portion really early. And if you stay in the whole time, when you get to year three, it really pays off because now you're getting most of your money, if not all back through the refinance. And then you're clipping the coupon, as I mentioned earlier. And now that compared to your original investment and your reduced basis based off the refinance is just superior to what you'll find in the equity markets and it's not going to be moved by the equity markets. You have real control. You can call me. How's the asset operating? What's the vacancy at? You can go visit it. You can touch it. You can do these types of things. So um, it's a tangible asset. It's a real asset. It has object, like it has true value. You know the amount of money it took to build it. We could argue over the, the price appreciation past what it took to build, but you know your floor and your replacement costs. So I just think it's. It turns into a, a bond, you're able to buy at a discount and it just may be non-performing for the first year or two. Um, and then you end up clipping massive coupons and, and taking tax incentives as well. So, so when it comes to other asset classes, I'd argue there are very specific cycles or points in time where it's better to invest in them than others. Um, like for example, uh, the last decade was probably one of the best times to invest in real estate with just the way things have been appreciating. Uh, so when it comes to this type of asset, uh, where we're doing land entitlement, what, um, how does the future hold for this? How is it performed? How is it doing now? And how, you know, how do you expect it to perform over the next 10 years? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's it definitely goes up and down with the natural cycle of real estate. But right, right now we're starting to see a little bit of a downturn. So what you should anticipate is in twelve to twenty-four months, land values should come down. They should come down to basically where I'm already purchasing that. I'm constant. I haven't spent over twelve thousand dollars on a on a unit um, since I started my career, and I don't plan on really spending much more unless I go into major urban areas and MSAs. But at the end of the day, you look at land comps, recent land comps. That's how you make a decision from a basic level. So to answer your question directly, sure, it's tied to market cycles. But the way we're buying dirt, I literally was talking to an investor. Look at the land comps. And he was saying the same thing. He's like, well, why don't I just wait 12 months? I was like, 
in 12 months, you will be lucky to buy the land at the price I have it today. You'll be lucky to find it. I buy it at half of market value already. That is my whole thesis. If I didn't do that, I'd just be riding the time. I'd just go be a broker. I would just go be a broker if I couldn't find value. I, I find and then create more value. So um, with us, it's always a good time to buy dirt because we're not buying it at a bad price and we're buying it at a great location and we're able to hold it if we need to. Um, if you're buying it with somebody else, I can't say the same. They're usually paying, you know, they'll, they'll be happy to be two grand in the market or whatever on a per unit basis, $110 million. They'll be happy to get it at like nine, five, 9.5 million. They're like, look at all, look at this $500,000 in value. We already locked in. That's, that's nowhere near enough for me. We want two and a half, three X on the day we get it. And we know so long as we don't uncover something crazy, we're going to have a great return, even if we don't build it. What percentage of your projects do you then vertically integrate and keep building on? Right now, it is five S, no, six out of seven. And one of them we're only transacting on because it's a, it's a two-phase project. Got the whole thing. It's... It was $4.5 million contract price. I think I put down like 35 grand or something, um, 58 acres. I turned it into a, I entitled it for 672 units. It was three part, three separate parcels that we brought together. So it's good for 672 units. I'm selling off the first phase of 250 of those 672 units. So I'll retain 422 units for $500,000 more than the purchase price of the property. So I will have, I'll be 500 grand profit and I'll have 422 units of entitled land left over, zero basis. I mean, it's great. I could sell it for five grand a unit and make a bunch of money. It's worth 20 grand a unit because that's what the first phase is trading at right now. And I said 20 grand a unit seven months ago and it's 20 grand a unit today in today's market. So that's wild. So Okay, you didn't wake up and say you wanted to be a land developer when you grew up. Like, how did you get into this space? How did you become the expert? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call myself the expert. If you put me around people who've been doing it for twenty years, I sound like a novice. So, um, but it was simple. My business partner Dean Myro taught me all about um, project finance. He started. He came out of law school as well. Didn't practice. Go back. Go back. So. So fun fact, Ray and I both went to Florida State. Um, and I think we both graduated rough, roughly around the same time. I graduated in 2015 from undergrad. Okay, I was uh, 2012. So yeah. um, so in, in like that same time span, from there, you graduated and you did what to get here? Yeah, so I was, I was lucky. I went to so I got my JDMBA and then I went work for Governor Scott for a year. Um, and then I worked as an attorney, as a real estate and tax attorney, basically a wealthy, wealthy family's attorney, which involves a lot of real estate always. Um, and then after that, I actually went and worked for Dean Myro, my now business partner, he's my best friend, my mentor, and my business partner all wrapped in one. I was um, employee number one at one of his portfolio companies. And then after 18 months, my equity vested and we had the fun conversation about how I'd like to do something of my own. And we... we we started Southern Waters Capital together about three years ago. So that's the quick genesis of, of how I am where I am today. And Dean, while I worked for him, um, he's always been in distress debt. This is the story I was about to tell. So basically, he graduated in 93 from 
Miami law. We'll let that slide, but um, still a great guy. He, um, he ended up going right into the capital markets and trading distressed debt uh, for a bond firm, sorry, bond firm and investment bank. And then he started, it was four or five years after that in 97, he started Bergen Capital and, and sold that after seven years of running it to BB&T. Um, and then BB&T kept him on for a decade to head their capital markets and project finance nationally. So Dean's really comfortable. Um, Dean's really comfortable with all sorts of project finance. So he taught me everything there is to know about essentially how, how much equity do you need? How much debt do you need? Where's your debt service coverage got to be? What other covenants are around? Just taught me how banks understand deals. And before that, I, I actually worked, um, worked for an insurance lobbyist as well. So if things can't be, I learned really quickly, if you can't insure something, you, you can't bank it. If you can't bank it, you can't build it. So it's kind of how I learned it all. And, and he taught me everything uh, on my way there. So uh, walk me through some of the things that have gone sideways or the nicks and bumps and bruises that you've come across on your way here. Like, Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, I've definitely, with our own money, um, run into some projects that I've let go before. Um, like I had a, I had, I think it was like 42 or 49 acres in an area called Hudson, Florida. It was set to be a really cool manufactured housing park, um, right across in this like crystal lagoon, all this stuff. And then honestly, we just had some other projects take up a lot of, take up a lot of time and bandwidth. And then next thing you know, contract starts coming up on time. Basically I didn't have enough time to actually run after this thing. So I ended up having to let it go. I actually am happy to say I think it's still on the market, but but that says another thing. Did should I have ever even tried to buy that? I don't know. I really don't know. Or is it just a very sticky seller? I don't know. So one, I've had I've had deals where I just simply didn't have the time, and I learned you know you just learn that you can't do everything all at once by yourself. It just can't be done. Um, second, you know, I remember getting my first Gopher Tortoise survey done and finding out that like. From the time I got my first gopher tortoise survey done, it cost $1,400 a gopher tortoise to remove. They have to go to a very lovely area. Oh yeah, you're, you're surprised about that? It's now 6,300 per gopher tortoise. So you, you do a survey, uh, you find that there's gopher tortoises species. on the pro property. Even I can tell you right now, those things, there's no way they're still endangered. I will. Seriously, bet anybody <laughs> all their earnings for a year. There's no way they're still endangered. I find many all over the place, just like when the manatees were endangered. Now they, or maybe they are again, but they weren't for a little while. Well, my point is, is I can tell you from firsthand experience and my friends, plenty of gopher tortoises in Florida, and somebody needs to address this whole endangered species. I want to, I want to recount on the gopher tortoise. <laughs> yeah. And and you're you need to then if you buy this property you need to remove the tortoises and so that costs sixty five hundred dollars pop. Yeah, that's insane. You, you can find like sixty, seventy, like on big sites. A lot. You're talking about almost a million bucks in gopher tortoises. It's unreal. It's unreal. You have to bring them. It's because they have to go to these sanctuaries. And I even looked into it. I was like, I'm going to go buy the land and do a gopher tortoise sanctuary, make money off my own projects. Next thing you know, I think it's like 
one or two per acre. You have to have like an insane amount. I don't know how, I understand why it costs so much because there's no way in hell you can take care of, take care of that much acreage for the, like these, they're like this big and they get half an acre to themselves. Not most humans don't get that. I don't understand. I don't understand it at all, but wow. I'm sure okay. there's an environmentalist who's like going to pull their hair out and call me out on, on social, but that's cool. Wow. Okay. And then, um, and so like, what's the lesson learned there? Like, how do you, how do you figure that out beforehand? If, if you can at all, best thing to do is to really, really do a good job before spending any money, asking questions ad nauseum of everybody, your, all your consultants. I have, I call my site contractor. I call my civil engineer. I call the architect. I call the GC. I'm talking to everybody. And I also, you know, talk to neighbors or local consultants who might have also done deals close by. You know, what'd you find when you did your geotech? What'd you find when you did your environmental? You know, it's funny how like anecdotally you can you can really learn a lot and figure out what you need to drill. What you really need to do is make sure you're drilling down on the things that are probably your biggest risk, right? So if I know it's sandy loam and the soil type and it's near the beach and you know gopher tortoises love that stuff like that's going to be the thing i do first probably i'm probably gonna do a preliminary gopher tortoise survey endangered species survey and make sure there's nothing there now if i'm on a heavily wooded site i'm going to look at the tree mitigation protocol and i'm going to understand whether or not these trees are protect are they scrub jay oak trees that are protected are they great oaks like or grand oaks, whatever they're called? Are they protected? Like it, it all depends on what you have. Or is it an invasive species and you're allowed to get rid of it quickly? So um, it's all the little things that I've kind of bumped into. And I've always been able to absorb issues because I bought the dirt right. Like the goal is to buy the dirt so right that no matter what comes up, you're still in the green. That's what it's all about. And that's what I do. Trust me, I make plenty of mistakes every single day, both in talking to potential investors, to talking to consultants, to looking for land, to everything. I make mistakes every single day. We just do a really good job of not making the same mistake twice. And we also do a really good job of making sure that even if we do make the mistake, we're going to be okay. And that's the, that's the key. What's the single... What do you think is the biggest one that's been in your book? Biggest what? Mistake? Biggest mistake. I mean, that gopher tortoise stuff was like five or six hundred grand. That was for real. So that was a big mistake. A second mistake is like base flood elevation. That'll sneak up on you. That can change in the middle of your project. I had that happen to me. But that wasn't that mean. Base flood elevation is like what FEMA said to say that at this level of rain, everything's underwater. There's the base flood elevation. This is where the basis of flood happens. Um, and you're usually supposed to build, depending upon the jurisdiction, like a foot, foot and a half, two feet above the BFE, base flood elevation. I had an agreement with the county. I won't name the county, but I had an agreement with the county regarding the base flood elevation. And I built our civil plans on that. And they changed the base flood elevation. And now my civil plans, which are dirt work, it's like where you push the dirt, where you dig the hole, how, how deep do you dig, how, how thick's the pavement got to be, how thick's the curb, where are the driveways? It all had to change. All had to change after a year and a half of planning. Everything. Wow. 
But that cost me a lot of money and more importantly, so much time. So much time. Now, could I really have predicted the base flood elevation was going to change? Not really. Could I have gotten that in a more official in a more official letter so I could have told the county, like, absolutely not, you're not changing this? Yes. But the reason it, it didn't work out, my guy who gave us the deal from the county retired. So it wasn't even like I could go back to him. In fact, I called him. He's like, I'm not going back in there and saying anything. I'm like, thanks. I really appreciate it. Like, you really you left me in a really solid spot. You're the best. So leave it up to the bureaucrats. But I have to take full responsibility and blame for everything. I'm the, I'm the guy coordinating. So, yeah, I got kicked in the teeth on that one. But tell you what, I'll, I won't make that mistake again. Totally. Totally. So um, what's your pitch when you go to an LP and you're talking to them? Uh, why, why do they choose? Why should they choose Southern Waters Capital over like all the other types of investments and things they can invest into? What's, what's your sales pitch? Yeah, you're just not going to find better value anywhere else that you can actually have full control over. You're going to have to buy a whole business. Or you're going to have to buy a, a, an equity stake in a stock that's large enough for you to get some board seats. But what you basically come to with us is you're walking into a, a really strong value proposition in, in real assets, most importantly, especially in today's metaverse, NFT, Bitcoin world, real assets. Um, and in addition to that, you're also buying land in the Sun Belt where there's fundamental drivers of value, basically net migration, supply demand imbalance, strength and economic diversity and growth in the regions and areas that we're building. So all I'm saying is it's a super simple fundamental economic balance, economic equation that has been proven long through time that land is land is valuable and increases in value as it becomes more finite as other people build. So it's simple. Really, when I go to my investors, it's not convincing them of the asset class. I usually just say, like, have you invested in land before? And if they say yes, then we have a different conversation. If they haven't, I, I ask the question, why? And if they go, oh, well, I really, really need cash flow, then I go, okay, we could talk about some of our other deals, like the lot development or some of the smaller multifamily acquisitions we do. But the land development's not for you. If the land development is for my investors, they're really quickly, they just ask me, it's this, this is how you sell a deal if you want to know. It's, do you like the market? Do you like my location? Do you like my basis, meaning my price? And then do you like the product that I'm going to build? And then do you like my team? That's it. Because I've already gotten rid of all the entitlement risk and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's literally market, location, price, product, team. That's it. And if you don't like any of those things, seriously, don't involve because I don't want anybody upset. And I work with larger you know, family offices and, and multi-generational developers who aren't arguing with me about these little nuanced items. We're really actually focused on the basis and the location, whether or not we think we can execute in the current credit cycle. And that's really what big investors care about. And what investors at the beginning of the value chain should understand and should care about. Got it. How do people find more about you? Yeah, me. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm all over it. So my, my real cell phone number and my real email is on LinkedIn. It's really funny how many people like hit my DMs and I don't respond because I don't have time. But like, they're like, can I have your email? Can I have this? And like, it's literally all you have to do is click the contact info button on LinkedIn. And then if you abuse it, I'll just block you. So that's how I always say like, not until I'm a billionaire will I take my email off the internet. So I'm, 
easily reachable. Random people call me all the time and I pick up and I, you know, like I said, I'm pretty diligent about if you abuse, abuse the contact, but if you don't, I give all my time I can that doesn't, you know, affect my ability to execute on what I'm doing. So they can, they can call me or email me or go to my website and uh, put in like one of those tickets. Yeah. And then you wanted some, uh, you know, one of the hardest things to raise capital for are different projects, but you also have another thing that you raise capital for. Let's talk about that. Yeah. The hardest for me to raise capital for, not because of lack of passion, just because of, I guess I don't have the investor base, but it's our, our charitable um, efforts, which are tied to the Friendship Circle, which is a national organization that helps um, individuals with developmental disabilities or special needs reach their highest potential, uh, both outside the workplace and within the workplace. So um, as I said, it's, a, it's like an umbrella organization that we started um, our own chapter here in, in, La, in Fort Lauderdale on Las Olas. And it actually turned into what we call the the friendship grill. It was just re it was just rebranded. I almost said friendship cafe, but if you Google friendship cafe for Lauderdale, I'm sure there's way more news than friendship grill. But um, we have I think it's like 15 to 20 individuals in the program that helped us open a restaurant on Las Olas um, and operate the restaurant with, of course, program coordinators and and other individuals who help um, train everybody up. But believe it or not, it's a it's a profitable endeavor for the not-for-profit and it, it actually supports itself. But um, we have the Friendship Cafe, as I said, or what is now the Friendship Grill, I should say. And we started um, a little additional uh, revenue driver, which is the Friendship Circle Charity Classic, which is a golf classic that we, we've hosted for one year. So we did it last year. We raised a little bit over a hundred grand, which we were super proud of. And we had over, more importantly, we had like 90 to 105 people show up at this golf golf tournament, which we had never done. And um, hats off to to my guy Zach Toyota and Dean Myro. They they really led the charge. I was I was happily participating um, and certainly doing my best to raise funds. But they they put it all together. Organizing a golf tournament not easy, not easy. Like pretty simple, as I stated before. Some things are simple, but really difficult. Even to, Negotiating to get the venue was, I seriously, it was harder than getting most deals. I was like, this isn't, I was like arguing for a Thursday, like you have to do it on a Monday. Nobody's coming out on a Monday. Can't take Fridays away from the club. Gotta, so anyway, the, the short and long of it is it's a, pro, it's a charity that we've, we've bolted on a couple events to, to help raise money and support those with developmental and special needs and help them get to a, um, a point in their lives where they can earn an honest wage, have fun, get out, you know, see people, other people like them and, and just uh, anybody in the community. So it's near and dear to my heart. because I have a, a nephew who is special needs and honestly, he's, he won't be able to participate in programs like this because he's, he doesn't have the capacity to do so. But for those that, that do, it's such a cool thing to see, to see the little bit of effort and money that can really bridge the gap between these individuals having a real true sense of self-worth and, and being able to earn for themselves. And, and honestly, they have a great time too. And, and being around them is just so awesome when they, it's like, um, it's like being around people who don't have a care in the world. And then it helps you realize what's really important in life, which is health and happiness and, you know, anything else you can fit in, in addition to that is, is a great life to live. So, um, 
friendship circle. That's that's what we support most. Hey, hooray, doing the Lord's work. Uh, yeah, don't that. go that far. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ray, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show today, and uh, thanks for sharing everything with our audience. No, I sincerely appreciate it, and thank you for everything you're doing uh, for the community out there. I need to, I need to see a few more podcasts. Hopefully, mine's not the the worst of all. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. All right, thanks, man. Take care. Take it easy.